0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the growing movement to cancel a Canadian icon, how elections bureaucrats are targeting pro-life activists, and why does Peter McKay not want to talk to Conservatives? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hey, welcome along, one and all, to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Great to have you aboard the program. We have really a jam-packed show up ahead. We'll be talking about Elections Canada's targeting of a pro-life political action group and why it's such an unfair and imbalanced way of approaching any of these things that we see happening in elections. Also going to be talking later on in the program about Peter McKay's avoidance of independent media, and I think this is a, an important one that cannot go without being called out. So we're going to be talking about that later on in the show as well. But first, I have to talk about this. I'm not a, a huge Brian Adams fan or detractor. I, I have no strong opinions, or at least until now, had no strong opinions on Brian Adams one way or another. I actually went to a Brian Adams concert once. Uh, it was a, a girl I was dating in high school whose mother was a big Brian Adams fan and bought us tickets, and the three of us went, which is like a perfect date to go out with your high school girlfriend and her mother. But it was a good show. I enjoyed it, and, you know, I enjoy some of his songs. But I've had no strong opinions of him one way or another. But I know he's one of these people that Canadians like to claim. So, cool. Brian Adams is Canadian. But now, like, the entire Canadian left and media is wanting to disown Brian Adams because he is guilty of thought crimes for an Instagram post he put up on The weekend. Uh, Cut Like a Knife, a song by me. Tonight was supposed to be the beginning of a tenancy of gigs at the Royal Albert Hall, but thanks to some effing, bat-eating, wet-market, animal-selling, virus-making, greedy bastards, the whole world is now on hold, not to mention the thousands that have suffered or died from this virus. My My message to them, other than thanks a blanking lot, is go vegan. To all the people missing out on our shows, I wish I could be there more than you know. It's been great hanging out in isolation, yada, yada, yada. So this Instagram post went viral. He had also tweeted it as well. So it wasn't just the Instagram post. He also tweeted a link to the Instagram post and had most of the text in the tweet. And then he was actually singing. It was actually a musical post. And he talked about nothing political in the song. In the video itself, he just sang Cuts Like a Knife, the great Brian Adams classic. And what was fascinating about this is that how many people... Took this and called it a toxic rant, a racist rant, not just a post, but a racist rant. And this I find it, I find, found to be quite interesting because he was literally taking aim at meat more than he was taking aim at China. And all of the people who look at this and say it's racist, I think, are actually projecting something on there. If you take racism, you're the one making a racial connotation there. Now, Brian Adams being a vegan, like vegans are generally speaking, not the most adept at avoiding offending others. Like vegans love to just like railroad their veganism down everyone's throats, whether you ordered it or not. And Brian Adams, I didn't actually know he was a vegan. Like I said, I had no strong opinions on him one way or another. But when I read this and he says literally in it, go vegan, I'm like, okay, so he just doesn't like the idea that this is something that was animal born that humans ate. When you go back to that whole early narrative that this might have come from a, a big steaming bowl of bat soup. And this now has become this cultural linchpin where if you criticize Bat soup, if you criticize eating bat, you're seen as racist. Where all the early narrative in this was that, yeah, it probably came from one of these markets. Now, we have no idea whether it was because someone ate it or whether it was someone that worked at the lab that was studying the virus that then spread it by going to a wet market. But regardless of where the virus came from, these Chinese wet markets are just absolutely horrendous place. It's not like your neighborhood fish market. It's not like the Asian grocery store you frequent in Toronto, in Vancouver, in Ottawa. It's not like that at all. These wet markets are selling live animals that are kept in horrendous conditions, and they're there for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is for people to just buy And consume. And I'm not an animal rights activist. I like animals. I think animals need to be treated with some semblance of of dignity, even if we are going to be eating them. I I don't think that's an improper way of looking at this. But to stand up for animal welfare is always virtuous. The left loves it. The left loves animals more than people sometimes. But when Brian Adams takes aim, or when anyone takes aim at the wet market, it's racist. And it takes a stunning level of dissonance to have moved from, you know, standing up for animals is virtuous to now it's racist because it's more important for us to appease uh, this very small subset of the Chinese population that thinks, you know, you can just eat bats and keep them in cages and breed for the purposes of that and have them stacked on each other and not, uh, you know, vaccinate animals and stuff like that. The very small subset of the population that's responsible for these wet markets, we need to appease them. And now Brian Adams, who's just, you know, going through his life thinking that, yeah, anywhere that sells food uh, like this is bad, and he would probably take aim at Costco for selling discount steaks, not just Chinese wet markets, he's seen as racist. Even though ethnicity was not mentioned, race was not mentioned, a country was not mentioned, he was literally talking about a behavior that he objects to, which has nothing to do with race. And by the way, all of the Chinese people that have been saying for months now, oh, bat soup, that's not us. They should be criticizing. I mean, they're actually endorsing what he's saying here, which is that the behavior is the problem, not the race of people, not the nationality. So th- this whole thing is hilarious. And But what, what was so disgusting is that Brian Adams was not just given the slap on the wrist. It was literally an orchestrated effort to cancel Brian Adams, starting as this thing was getting viral just as quickly were tweets saying, I think the hashtag was Brian Adams is cancelled. People trying to get his Order of Canada revoked by, in one case, tagging Governor General Julie Payette as though she's just monitoring Twitter waiting for like nominations for who to de-order of Canada. People trying to get his shows canceled, people trying to get all of these sponsors that he may have worked with to drop. And this is the social media mob in action. They don't just want to say, hey, that was wrong and I disagree. They want to destroy everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do. That's the social media mob. Now, Brian Adams is in the Order of Canada. He's got awards. He's got hit records. He's got all of these things. He's going to be fine. But the goal, nevertheless, was to destroy him. The goal was to make it so that this guy is no longer going to be held up as a Canadian icon, where Brian Adams, instead of being synonymous with everything I do, I do it for you, or Summer of 69, will instead be uh, aligned with racism and bigotry. That is the line that people were trying to draw. And of course, it works. You know, you get whether Brian Adams himself or a publicity team, I don't know, responding with something of an apology. On, on Tuesday, Brian Adams posted another song and he had said that there's no excuse. I just wanted to have a rant about the horrible animal cruelty in these wet markets being the possible source of the virus and promote veganism. I have love for all my people and my thoughts are with everyone dealing with this pandemic around the world. Now, given that the one had like two effings and the second had no effings, it stands to reason he may not have written the second one. But again, like that didn't work. So even his apology and saying, listen, it's nothing to do with racism. It's not what I meant to do. I didn't want to offend. Even that is not getting people to backtrack. Then it just like furthers the anger. So the social media mob is never going to be happy. It's never going to be satisfied. But more importantly, we shouldn't be capitulating to this idea that criticizing a bad practice that happens to exist in another country is inherently racist because that isn't the case. And we set ourselves up for a lot of problems down the road if that's the path that we want to travel. We really do. So look, good for Brian Adams. It doesn't change what I think of his music, but I think that it's so very important for people to not fall into these traps. And I know with celebrities, the, the instinct, especially from people on the right, is to say, oh, who cares what they think? Come on. But at the same time, people on the right tend to just seize any time a celebrity says something they like. And this has always bugged me. So, you know, when Robert De Niro or Meryl Streep or uh, Kanye, not Kanye West, yeah, I'll get to Kanye in a second, when, you know, Meryl Streep, I, I've lost knowledge of all celebrities now, like Robert De Niro, who's the other or the really preachy one? Not Ed Begley Jr., Sean Penn, Ed Begley, no one knows who Ed Begley Jr. is now. I don't know why I gave him as an example. But whenever these celebrities mouth off about whatever, the, the right always says, oh, who cares? You know, who cares what you think? And then the second Kanye or... Tim Allen or uh, you know maybe Brian Adams who knows says something that they agree with it's all of a sudden oh listen to what Kanye had to say listen to these and you set yourself up for failure if you put too much stock in what celebrities think I think they're people I think if they say something worth listening to I'll listen to it but I'm not going to hold one up as being the oracle of all that makes sense in the world and similarly I'm not going to boycott someone's movies or music because they're a bit nutty on politics so yeah I'll defend Brian Adams against the mob but that's not because I I think that he is this virtue of uh, you know beacon or fountain of wisdom that we all need to be listening to it's just because he said something that's sensible or at absolute worst banal and irrelevant but not evil not racist not worth all of the media coverage by the way like CBC's story, uh, his, he's drawn rebuke from a Chinese-Canadian organization and social media users, or a CTV story focused on an anti-racism group's response to Brian Adams. And all of these stories that are based around not the depravity of the wet markets, but Brian Adams' supposed racism. This is the narrative that's unfolding here. And again, he will be fine. I don't think we're talking about a guy here who's actually going to lose something, And in fact, he's at that age where, and that point in his career where I think it's probably very difficult to cancel. But you look at the names that are going here. By the way, I mean, Ozzy Osbourne was criticized for eating bats and that was all fine, but you can't criticize people in a Chinese wet market for having a bowl of bat soup, apparently. So look, he's given the apology. It's not going to put it to bed. The good news with the mob is that people will forget about this in all of like four days, unless he says something else. But by then they'll move on to whoever the next uh, victim of the mob is. But it is fascinating to me that all it takes, all it takes is a bunch of no name, uh, numbered Twitter accounts without avatars to start saying the word racist. And you've got dozens of news stories available. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. And the reaction story is probably one of the laziest forms of journalism imaginable. Because it's not actually journalism. It's just looking on Twitter and saying, oh, so-and-so is saying this. So I guess that's the story. I guess this is what we're writing about. And it's not about whether the criticisms have merit. It's not about whether Brian Adams is actually racist, which no one has been able to present any evidence to suggest he is. And then for all of this, for all of this, we in society lose out because it creates this culture, this toxic cancel culture where it's not just where cancellation is a byproduct of it, but it's actually the goal. When I logged onto Twitter and I saw Brian Adams is canceled trending and you click on that and it's people that are trying to destroy him, people who love his music, they have his albums, maybe they've been to the concerts and they say, oh, no, I guess we can't like him anymore. Why? Think for yourself. Think for yourself, you idiots. And I'm sorry, but if we're going to start turning on celebrities for being vegans, we're going to leave a lot of them that we're no longer able to listen to, uh, including uh, Pamela Anderson and I don't know who the other ones are, but th- like that's the the most notable vegan, I think. And and for people, it's like listen, you've got to separate the personal from the political. And I'm just gonna to listen to the song Cuts Like a Knife because it's a good song. So there we go. We'll be back in a couple of moments with more of the Andrew Lawton show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to the Andrew Lawton show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. So if you've ever volunteered on a political campaign, you know that volunteers are the lifeblood of them. I mean, as someone who's run for office, I can tell you firsthand, even though I didn't win, you don't get anywhere without volunteers. And when people talk about their frustrations with the politicians that are representing them, The big question is, okay, what have you done about it? Have you helped out on a campaign? Have you tried to get someone elected? And there's a fantastic group in Canada called Right Now, which has done exactly that. It's made by two pro-lifers, Alyssa Golob and Scott Hayward, who, and I've known both of them for years, frustrated that pro-lifers weren't really moving the goalpost down the road and having more people represented in politics and in Parliament. So they said, let's connect volunteers with pro-life candidates, pro-life volunteers with pro-life candidates. And I, in the interest of disclosure, had support from Right Now volunteers when I ran for office a couple of years ago. And I don't uh, blame them for my loss. Don't worry, Scott. But the fact of the matter is they are now being targeted by the Commissioner of Canada elections for possibly violating election law for helping candidates in the federal election in 2019. We haven't heard of anything like this being directed towards the many left-wing groups like labour unions, for example, that were doing very similar things for left-wing parties. Scott Hayward, one of the co-founders of Right Now, joins me on the line now. Uh, Scott, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us, Andrew. Really appreciate it.
0: So, let's be be very frank here. The third-party rules, I know, changed the way that a lot of organizations had to uh, navigate just election law. Uh, you complied with all of these regulations. What is the problem right now?
1: Yeah, so the amendments to the Canada Elections Act came in basically to detail under the last Parliament late spring of uh, 2019. So we are already actually um, involved in getting ready and getting volunteers ready to actually participate in the 43rd general federal election when the legislation came in. So we took a look at it to make sure that we were in compliance of it. And I mean, we don't know what the allegation says. Elections Canada won't reveal that to us or who made the allegation or the basis of the allegation. But what little, what little we know from Elections Canada is that the allegation essentially states that we violated the Canada Elections Act by providing volunteers to pro-life candidates, winnable pro-life candidates. So the um, the main crux of the issue, I suppose is that within the Canada Elections Act, it says that a registered third party cannot provide non-monetary contributions to political parties or to candidates in our case. Um, But back in the summer, when I took a look at the new legislation, it specifically said under the definition of non-monetary contributions that volunteers were excluded from that definition, meaning that a third party could provide volunteers to you know, candidates. And so I reached out to Elections Canada back in the summer of 2019 to make sure that this was fine, what we we're about to engage into. They got back to me and they didn't give me a definitive answer, but heavily indicated that it should be all right. It seemed to be okay by reading the legislation for what it is. It seemed to be okay by reading through their uh, 70-whatever-page uh, guide for third, registered third parties. And so we were quite surprised when we received the letter in mid-February. And uh, knowing that a lot of other organizations out there, such as a number of unions, were engaging in same or similar things, we were you know, quite surprised that uh, we received that letter and that they were investigating us.
0: And I think that the two real points of offense here, not only that you're being investigated for just engaging in the political process, but that you have to defend yourself against an allegation that you're not quite clear on. So I know that this letter I read in the national post has uh, compelled you to produce documentation. Well, how do you even know what they're looking for if you're not seeing the scope of the investigation?
1: Yeah, precisely. It makes it very difficult to cooperate. So, um, To give a bit of a timeline to everyone out there, we received a letter in mid-February from Elections Canada saying that these allegations were made and that they'd be opening up an investigation. Uh, They would not be pursuing criminally and that uh, the conclusion that investigation could um, include monetary penalties against right now. So they were asking for documentation on the allegation. So we said, that's great. What is the allegation? So we can provide the documentation to defend ourselves against the allegation Um, Also, are you looking into these other organizations, such as a number of unions that are basically doing the same or similar things? And often cases went above and beyond what we did in terms of providing, um, you know, in in terms of providing support to a variety of candidates across the country. Elections Canada got back to us, um, you know, late April, basically reiterating the same thing. And then we got back to them the next day with the same... um, Kind of the same answer saying we're happy to cooperate, but we're needing to know you know, what the allegation is, who made the allegation and the basis of the allegation before we know what to provide you. Because we're not just going to give carte blanche to an outside organization yeah. of everything that's within our organization.
0: That's so, so important. And I know that Ezra Levant is facing something very similar where he sat down with investigators and had no idea what it is they were actually looking for. And I know other people have had similar frustrations with this investigative body. I have to ask you, when they are investigating you, and you may not know the answer to this, but is this just them checking off their box because they got a complaint? Or do they have the ability to say when they receive a complaint, this is a nuisance, we're not going to advance it?
1: That I actually don't know. I don't know if Elections Canada has the ability to, uh, whether or not to decide they're going to pursue an investigation uh, when an allegation is made by an individual or by another registered third party or political party. I actually don't know the answer to that. Um, It seems to me by reading the letter that it it was a decision of the commissioner to to pursue an investigation. So I'm thinking there is a little bit of leeway there, but I don't 100% know the answer.
0: What is the impact if something like this proceeds in your view? Because I know that there could be by-elections coming up, there could be another election at any point, and uh, for any group, not just yours, how do you take what's happening?
1: Yeah, well, I, that's a very good question, because I think there's um, two different sets of of what, what impacts are going to be. There's internally for our organization, what the impact will be, and there's externally for... You know our organization and everyone else. So internally for our organization, you know, we're we're small but we're mighty. You know it, it, we have two people on staff. The reason why we have two people on staff is because that's all we can afford. You know we were founded uh, just over four years ago. Since then we've had tremendous success, but we're an organization that brings in just over two hundred thousand dollars a year. We're not a multi-million dollar organization. So internally, what this impact will have on us is. You know, making sure that we have good legal counsel, you know, I'm a charter professional accountant. I'm not a lawyer, nor is my uh, colleague, the other co-founder. So we have to retain good legal counsel. Um, and you, if you want good legal counsel, you know, that does come of a bit of a price, which is fair yeah. enough. And if there are any monetary penalties, you know, set against us um, in will decide what to do at that point when, if that, if it comes to that, you know, there, there comes a real cost with that. So that's what happens to us internally. Externally, if uh, the decision by Elections Canada is that we are, we're in fact, in contravention of the Act, which I don't know how, given how the Act is written, um, it will have a chilling effect. And I agree with Andrew Shearer on that. I think it will have a chilling effect on not just our organization, other pro-life organizations, but other you know, organizations who might be pro-abortion, other organizations that specifically only support one political party. Uh, so it could be unions supporting, um, you know, liberals and NDP candidates or environmental groups supporting Green Party candidates. Um have a chilling effect right across Canada as to whether or not people actually want to engage in the political process by knocking on doors for, you know, candidates that support their values and support policies that they like. And I think that's a very dangerous road to go down in a democracy and it quickly leads to a country you know not really being a full democracy so i think it does have um, some quite ne- it could have some quite significant negative impacts both internally and externally
0: and I obviously don't want to downplay the financial toll that this could take. And I mean, just by virtue of fighting, it will take on, on right now. But I think that the bigger point here, and I think you've touched on that very well, is that it's meant to shut people up. I mean, worse than you having to fundraise to pay a penalty is you not being able to do the work that you set out to do.
1: Yeah, and it, and, and we'll go down that road if, if it comes to it. Like, we'll cross that bridge. So it's, it's really an Elections Canada court right now as to... Know, what they're going to do with this. Um, I would not be surprised if uh, they do come down with penalties and say, well, you were in violation of the Act. I don't understand how any organization out there, whether they be a union, whether they be pro-abortion, pro-life, uh, an environmental group, uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, firearms groups, I don't understand how any of our organizations can get involved politically. And if our organizations who represent the interests of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Canadians um, can get involved in the political process, then our democratic function as a country is really, really going to go downhill, I think.
0: Well, and the fact that the act, as you understand it, specifically excludes volunteers is the most important part here. There seems to be an understanding with this that volunteers are the backbone of elections. And and that's why if someone volunteers on a campaign, it isn't something that's an in-kind contribution. It's not something that has to be declared. It's just there. So the idea of even if a group's facilitating it, I don't think it is changing it that much. I know that with my campaign and with other campaigns I've seen, it's not all that uncommon for a, a group from a church or from some community organization all band together and say hey we're going to go out and and knock on doors and, and that's not all and that's not a gray area that's just how campaigns work
1: yeah and i think it's a really important like ask any like you said andrew ask any candidate regardless of political party who's ran for public office how much they uh, rely on volunteers specifically volunteers from various organizations and various groups out there um that uh, you know, those candidates represent those values and represents those policy positions um, that those particular groups uh, find supportive. And that's how a lot of campaigns operate. Again, whether it's a Conservative Party of Canada, Canada, a Liberal Party of Canada, Canada, it doesn't really matter what political party, they do, uh, to a large extent, rely on a variety of groups and issue based organizations out there to provide uh, volunteers. For their campaigns, in order for them to seek and win public office.
0: So, what's the timeline that you have on this now? The next steps in this process with the Commissioner of Canada Elections?
1: We really don't know. So, we, we sent a letter, uh, dated April twenty third. Um, they said in their letter to us, dated the day before, April twenty second, that they give us two weeks to you know cooperate. And we sent a letter back the next day saying we'd like to cooperate, but in order for us to cooperate, we know. We need to know what we're cooperating with. We need to know what the allegation says. And uh, we haven't heard back from Elections Canada. So it's, it's really in their court. I, I have no idea what the timeline is. I don't think there's any uh, timeline that's laid out in the Act or in the regulations to the Act. Um, so it's, it's, we're really in a dark place in that regard for the timeline.
0: Now would your ideal scenario here be that they just kind of rip up the letters, rip up the file and pretend it never happened or are you looking for a fight just to kind of make that point that what you do and and what groups like you do uh, is not only important but really essential to the political process?
1: I think that if they interpret the act objectively and reasonably the way it's written in the spirit of it that this case would be closed already. And I think that would probably be the best thing, both internally and externally, like the fight is already out there, the media such as yourself and others are already picking up on it. Mm -hmm. And if they don't pursue the case, then obviously that would be an indication that the type of um, activities that we and other organizations out there they're engaging in are within the confines of the act that we're operating legally within the act. And that's probably the easiest, quickest, cleanest way uh, for everyone to move forward here.
0: And just to be clear, there's no advertising component of this, as far as you know, because that was the area of the third-party rules that most people were focused on, and certainly that was the area that I was paying attention to uh, when we saw the rules come out in the first place.
1: Yeah, the the big thing for creating uh, the whole point of registered third parties for general federal elections were with advertising, for advertising whether it be on Facebook, TV, newspapers, Um, all that sort of stuff. Our organization didn't engage in any advertising during the RIP period, so uh, we didn't have to, you know, declare any. Uh, But there was a bunch of other things that we had to declare, Um, and we didn't spend a whole lot of money on the election. Our return is on the Elections Canada website. It was under $10,000. So, you know, it it was quite encumbersome, I'm not going to lie. It was quite encumbersome to do the reports, to file the reports, to go through the reports, to go through the act, to go through the guide, which was more confusing than helpful. Um, and I say that as a chartered professional accountant, by the way, it, it's quite <laughs> cumbersome for a lot of groups to, to go through all these, you know, bureaucratic loops to just engage in the political process on behalf of the hundreds of thousands of people that we represent. So yeah, for, it's interesting for the advertising because that's to me, seemingly why all this stuff was brought in. Uh, but the side effect of it is that um, it affects quite a few different organizations out there that aren't really that interested in advertising when it comes to getting involved in federal elections.
0: Now, I know that you don't just deal with elections, general and by-elections, but also internal races like nominations and, and leadership races. I Just before we wrap up here, uh, you're involved in the conservative leadership race through uh, looking at the candidates and talking to them. If you want to give a, a plug to how people can find your information, I know a lot uh, would probably appreciate it.
1: Yeah, so with the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race, obviously one needs to be a member of the party, which costs $15, $15, and they have until May 15th, so a couple days here until midnight local time to purchase a membership, so I encourage all pro-lifers out there, whether you normally vote for the Conservatives in an election or not, to get involved to make sure that the pro-life candidates who are running uh, for the leadership race, to actually win because that's the only way to vote for them. So you can visit our website; it starts right now.ca We have a tab there uh, called uh, CPC Leadership 2020. It has all the information there for the leadership race um, timelines, how it works, how the point system works. Uh, but a cool thing that I think that we do is that we uh, interview all the candidates, or at least the ones that are willing to talk to us, um, for the leadership race, and we interview them on kind of you know a little bit of personal stuff about them individually, but also, you know, what they plan to do for our pro-life issues, so their pro-life platform and policies. We have on their voting records from their time as a member of parliament or a member of provincial parliament or whatever provincial legislature they've sat in, as well as their winnability factor. You know, how many caucus members do they have supporting them? Have they been a, a, have a parliamentary leadership role, like a cabinet minister or speaker of the House? You know, how big is their social media following? So we have all that together and we weighed it together, have a little score system, come up with a score and come up with a recommended ranked ballot. because it's a ranked ballot system. So if you want yes. more information on that and how to get involved, that's the place to go.
0: All right. Well, thank you for that. Co-founder of Right Now, Scott Hayward, joining me on the line. Best of luck uh, fighting against the bureaucrats in this, uh, which is an important fight. I know we've said it, but uh, it bears repeating. It's not just about you. I think all groups and individuals that want to engage in the political process, this uh, affects. So uh, thank you very much and uh, all the best to you, Scott.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: I will say, and I've talked about Right Now in the past, an organization that is really driven by results which I, I think is very important. If you are pro-life, definitely important. And if you aren't pro-life, I think you have to respect the way that they're engaging and, and focusing on nominations because a lot of the time people focus on the leaders of the parties, which is obviously important, but leaders are are in many respects followers and they have to respond to where their caucus is. So you have to create a climate, not just culturally, which is what we do here at True North and in the media and other stuff like that, uh, but even just that infrastructure as well. So um, my thanks to Scott for that. And he mentioned Andrew Shear's response. I want to play a clip here. Andrew Shear had a press conference, I think it was on Monday, when I asked about this and got what I thought was a very solid answer from Andrew Shear about uh, this investigation into right now. Now, here's that exchange right now a pro-life uh, activist group is uh, being investigated by the Commissioner of Canada elections after connecting volunteers with uh, close to 50 pro-life candidates in the last election all conservatives I was wondering what your response to that is
2: well I think it's uh, it's obviously very concerning anytime uh, grassroots organizations who who support particular positions or candidates are are uh, obviously we're very concerned about any type of uh, negative signal this sends to people who are trying to be engaged in the in the electoral process and volunteering in elections campaigns. I would be curious to know whether or not Elections Canada is also going to investigate Unifor, a large union which specifically targeted defeating conservatives. Uh, whether or not they are going to be investigating other groups like Lead Now and other. Uh, uh, groups who have made their uh, priority very well known, their express purpose of their, of their activities to defeat Conservatives and elect Liberals. So uh, I, I look forward to Elections Canada uh, showing that kind of uh, fairness and, uh, and uh, applying the same logic to, 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 to all groups.
0: Yeah, Shear made the point there that I I think is an essential one, which is where's the investigation into Unifor? Where's the investigation into LEAD now? And by the way, I don't think the elections bureaucrats should be investigating LEAD now or should be investigating Unifor. But the point is, if we're talking about groups that are supposedly giving a non-monetary contribution, how about Unifor declaring itself the resistance to Andrew Shear? How about Unifor declaring itself a group that was going to fight to tooth and nail, to defeat conservatives, not even just to advance an idea but to defeat a specific party, a specific leader. That's what Unifor set out to do. And I mean, whether Unifor succeeded or not, I don't know. But ultimately, that was what they set out to do. And and they were very proud about that. And by the way, ask anyone who's a member of Unifor, uh, employees across the country who were getting politically charged anti-conservative material sent to them. I don't know if it was every single member of Unifor, but certainly in many sectors, they were getting this political propaganda. Now that's free speech. I'm all for it, but I don't like the weaponization of these elections agencies to only target groups that are the ideological opponents of the left, which is what seems to be happening here with right now and with the investigation into Ezra Levant for writing a book, The Lebranos. When, just like what Scott Hayward said about volunteers being excluded from this, in Ezra's case, uh, the books were excluded. Books and book marketing were excluded from the ban on advertising, and still they're going after him. So this is absolutely sending a chill, and this needs to be fought, and we'll be following this as it proceeds. So thanks very much again to Scott for coming on. We'll be back in a couple of moments with more of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. And as mentioned earlier on in the show, in just two days, if you're listening to this the day it comes out, so on Friday, May 15th, the membership cutoff to join the Conservative Party to vote in the leadership race happens. Now, this is a non-partisan show. Obviously, we're philosophically and ideologically conservative, but we aren't aligned with a political party. But still, we're covering the leadership race because it is important to all Canadians, particularly those of a conservative persuasion. And I want to talk about this here, and it's going to be a little bit personal, but you'll understand why in a moment. The poll that came out from Main Street via iPod Politics is that Peter McKay is the leading candidate. He's the first choice for the more, more people than anyone else. But it looks like Aaron O'Toole would win on the second ballot because of the support from Leslie Lewis and Derek Sloan, when most of those people are going to be putting O'Toole as their second choice rather than McKay. Now, it's not like 2017 when there were—how many candidates were there? Like 14 candidates by the time of the final ballot, maybe 13— And it's not going to be like that. Now, with that, the first like seven were all like under 1%, I think. And then it got to the point where you started to see real movement on it. But what I will say is incredibly, incredibly relevant here is to look at the specific numbers. Because Aaron O'Toole, and we talked to him on the show on Monday, is positioning himself as being the natural successor for down-ballot support from Leslyn Lewis and Derek Sloan, which means if Lewis and Sloan are able to do fairly well in signing up new members and getting support from members, and we interviewed both of them, you can go if you want to listen to those back into the archives a few weeks, then Aaron O'Toole will win. Just as Doug Ford won because of Tanya Granik-Allen's support and Andrew Scheer won because of Brad Trost and Pierre Lemieux's support, the idea of social conservative as kingmaker is very important in leadership's and in ranked ballot situations. And the fact is, Peter McKay is just not popular with that wing of the party, and he's done nothing. He's made no overtures to that wing of the party, and I think this needs to be called out. Now, I have been deliberately keeping my mouth shut about offering commentary on a lot of the leadership candidates for the last couple of months, and it's actually been counterintuitive for me because (laughs) the whole point of having a talk show is you talk about the things that you're feeling and thinking and your analysis and all of this stuff. And I've actually been a little bit restrained. And the reason is because I did not want while I was interviewing candidates for there to be anyone that could say that I was going into it with an agenda or going into it with a bias. And in all honesty, I set out for the conservative leadership series genuinely with an open mind. I did not have a a first choice, a second choice. I didn't have any choice when I started interviewing candidates. And I I don't even now necessarily have a a definitive ranking in mind. So people that say, oh, this one's your favorite, that one's your favorite. You don't know that because I don't even know that. But I Here's the thing. I think it's important to do these candid, frank and cordial interviews because these candidates need to be introduced in a way to Canadians that is different from the way that the mainstream media is introducing them. The mainstream media cares about doing, you know, 45 minutes on abortion and gay marriage when conservative members are actually concerned with a a lot of other things and I'd say almost entirely other things for the most part. So, what I wanted to do with this series was have these conversations, go in depth, and give you the opportunity to hear what these people stand for. And I give a little bit of pushback. It's not meant to be a free ride, but it's also not meant to be a combat session. So we did this. We did it with Marilyn Gladue and Rudy Husney, and they unfortunately didn't make the final ballot. We did it with Leslie Lewis, Derek Sloan and Aaron O'Toole. And the series is at this point, I'm going to say over because one of the four candidates, Peter McKay, has not replied to us at all. At all. Now, this is going back months. This is going back months. The second the race opened, actually, we started making a headway with campaigns saying, this is the series we'd like to do. These are the interviews we'd like to do. And originally, we were insisting they all be done in person because we wanted it to be that real face-to-face conversation. We had to amend that given the pandemic, which was fine. Thankfully, we had already recorded... Two of the four candidates, Aaron O'Toole, we did by Skype last week. And Peter McKay, we would have interviewed however and wherever he wanted because he is a candidate in this race that we are covering. And I have to, as I said earlier, call out the non-response from the Peter McKay campaign because I, I honestly believe there is something else happening here because it is crunch time they have until Friday to sign up new members. So if there are people out there that are conservatives that haven't yet been given a reason to join the Conservative Party, candidates have until Friday to try to get those people to pony up the $15 to write, uh, to write in, to support them, to join the party. And he has done mainstream media interviews. Peter McKay has done CTV, CBC. He's done them all, but has not had time for any independent media. And that includes True North, the only candidate to not sit down with us and to not even give the courtesy of a reply to our requests. And this is important because we're either talking about a campaign team that's so inept it can't even manage to find the reply button on an email, or rather a campaign team that's made a concerted and specific decision to ignore or avoid independent media. And if you are a conservative leadership candidate, you should be embracing conservative media, not fleeing it. Because the audience here is a lot more better aligned with the audience that he needs to win over to win the leadership than the audience of CBC or CTV. And if you win a conservative leadership by getting people who are watching CBC to vote for you, I'm sorry, but you're probably not the best candidate to lead a conservative party. Not if you want to keep a conservative party actually conservative. And this isn't just about True North. A Rebel was ejected from a Peter McKay event when David Menzies tried to have an impromptu interview. I didn't do the David Menzies thing, showing up with a microphone. I tried to go through the proper channels. And I've done this for years. When the 2017 conservative leadership race happened, I sat down with almost every one of the 14. And I think there were only two that I missed, and it was because of their travel schedules. They couldn't actually get to London, where I was doing the interviews from, in person. Uh, In the Ontario PC race in 2018, I interviewed all of the candidates face to face. So the whole point of this is that candidates who are seeking the leadership of a party need to be speaking to the party's base. And I'm not going to say that I'm representative of the Conservative voter base, but I am representative of what a lot of Conservative Canadians are talking about and what they care about. And for Peter McKay to not even have the interest in replying to decline shows a gross ignorance to the base that he needs to have there to get him elected, not just as leader, but even to a uh, prime minister if he is successful in seeking the leadership. So conservative-minded journalists are enough of a rarity in Canada— that it's important to pay attention to them. And again, this isn't about me, it's, it's uh, True North, it's post millennial. it's Spencer Fernando, it's all of these people that are speaking to a voice that just doesn't exist in that large a quantity. So the mainstream media is not there for the conservative base in Canada. So why focus on them? Why focus on getting those people to like you? And this is one of the greatest flaws that a lot of people on the right make, thinking that they can just win over the mainstream media, win over the CBC crowd, win over the CTV crowd. And you'll hear this if you talk to people, a whole bunch of people in Canada that are not conservatives, that have no conservative bones in their body, that are saying, well, you know, I'm not conservative. But, you know, if Peter McKay were the leader. And none of these people actually vote conservative when all is said and done. We saw this in Ontario with Patrick Brown. We see it in uh, Alberta where people said, oh, well, no, if Jason Kenney weren't the leader, I'd vote. And and look, Jason Kenney wins a majority. You get people federally that say, oh, well, you know, I, I'd vote for the Conservatives, but not with Andrew Scheer. No, all of these people, they just move the goalpost. They're never going to vote Conservative. So don't use them as the benchmark for how to craft a Conservative party. When you say that we have to move to the center, when you say that you have to just appeal to moderates, yeah, that's fine, but not if it comes at the expense of losing the people that you know actually might support you or will support you unless you give them an active reason not to. Now, as far as the non response versus the uh, reply to decline, the only thing that I can think of for why McKay's team didn't uh, decline is because they tend to have to reverse everything that they say within two days. So if they decline within two days, they'd have to accept. Whereas by not responding, there's nothing they can flip flop on. That's like one of the many things that the McKay campaign has done wrong. It's just everything they say, you just have to reverse it in a couple of days, uh, which is why McKay's Twitter is great because you get both sides of the argument uh, without actually having. Having to stray very far. So here's the point that I made in a column about this. McKay's avoidance of the conservatives engaged in Canada's cultural battles demonstrates his unwillingness to advance a genuine conservative agenda. If McKay were going to do something for conservatives, he would want to tell conservatives about it. This hasn't happened, and if my empty inbox is any indication, it won't happen. Now, I want to stress, this is not about uh, pettiness on my part. The invitation still stands. If Peter McKay calls me up and says, Andrew, I'm sorry, this was a, you know, we had like the most uh, restrictive spam filter in the history of Canada. We'll happily do your show now. Let me know. The invitation is there. I will have Peter McKay on before the May 15th cutoff or after, but I'm not going to let him slide for what I would say is taking for granted that a certain portion of the country is just going to go for him because he's been there the whole time. That is not what people want. And if you look at the comments on anything we've written about Peter McKay, you'll see that a lot of people are not buying into that hype. So when when Aaron O'Toole said on Monday that the Peter McKay coronation is no longer an idea, I, I think there actually is some truth to that we've got to wrap things up here my thanks to all of you for tuning into the show we'll be back next week with more of canada's most irreverent talk show thank you god bless and good day canada
2: thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at www.tnc.news